This is Wading Deep, a podcast that explores the connection between environmental justice and race. Racism pollutes our people and land. Resilience, our strength of spirit and hand. Resurrection, our healing, made whole we stand. I'm your host, the Reverend Jamon Taylor, rector at St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, a congregation with a long history of challenging environmental racism. I am honored to welcome today's guests who are renowned historians. Mr. Ernest Dollar is executive director of the City of Raleigh Museum. The Reverend Dr. Brooks Grabner is the retired rector of historic St. Matthew's Episcopal Church, Hillsboro, North Carolina, as well as the historiographer for the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. And Dr. Earl Imes is archivist, curator, historic preservation, and I guess farming archivist that I learned recently. Uh, he's with the North Carolina Museum of History. Welcome, gentlemen. The topic today is history surrounding St. Ambrose using the congregation's three physical locations as time markers. Smoky Hollow from 1868 to 1900, the church's move near the Prince Hall District from 1900 to 1965, and a move to Rochester Heights from 1965 to present day. And we're concentrating on the second move, uh, the first move to our second location, uh, beginning in 1900. And Dr. Eines, I know you've done extensive research on color lines. I think Raleigh is unique in that it had two racial color lines. Can you talk about what was happening uh, leading up to the 1900s that made St. Ambrose's move almost inevitable? Well, a couple things. Um, the color line barrier, well, Raleigh was not that large of a city back then. Uh, it was, uh, along with Washington, D.C., the first two planned capitals in America, 1792, with an east, west, north, and south street that was that way literally until 1857. And in 1857, uh, the city was expanded, and I'm sure Ernest can tell you more about this, um, where those limits went beyond those east, west, north, and south streets but in 1900, we were having also this end of Reconstruction, so to speak, this post-Reconstruction where it culminates with the 1898 coup in Wilmington, and then in 1900 with some of the last elections or free elections in our state for almost a century, where the last Black Republicans and the last participation of African Americans and Indians for that matter, in, in the process, was pretty much ending in 1900. And of course, 1901 is when the grandfather clause is inserted. And so we begin to get this mandated move toward uh, racial segregation and and unequal access and, and racism, well, not so much racism, but legal discrimination, legal racism. So there's this etching out and engraving out in all communities, especially around the capital city of was white, was colored. And so that area had been before 1900, Morgan and Wilmington Streets, right in the middle of Raleigh there. Uh, but as as after 1900, 
the Prince Hall Mason Lodge itself probably embodies this because they literally have to move, or they literally move across the street uh, from Cabarrus Street to their present location. Uh, and it's interesting, I was talking to some of the Masonic uh, brothers over there not long ago, and they were describing the move as they moved the building on logs, uh, you know, that short area. But that short distance exemplified figuratively a much longer distance where uh, it was becoming mandatory to be separate and unequal. And and so uh, by 1900, the the you know Smoky Hollow had pretty much been almost smoked out, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, it it uh, you know had been superseded, replaced. And some of the foundations of what a lot of people see in Raleigh now are beginning and the institutions are beginning to to, to supersede them. You know, uh, particularly I think about uh, uh, my album model over at NC State being put right in the middle of those previously mentioned uh, historically black communities over there. But also if we come closer back to town, closer back to downtown in 1868, the legislature uh, does something that is is almost uh, we talk about environmental racism, environmental justice. They decide to erect a penitentiary quote for the better management of convict labor. That is that is the actual law that creates our central prison, right? A erection of a penitentiary for the better management of convict labor. So this law comes out of the legislature in 1868 in July, and of all the places in the whole state where there can be placed a penitentiary, the legislature decides to place it literally in the midst of those historically black communities. So coming back over, you know, yours, and I know this covers the previous time frame. But by 1901, these institutions have pretty much superseded or almost blotted out a huge segment of those old black communities and, and helped to perpetuate this environmental aspect of racism or, or the environmental racism aspect of racism. Um, and, and so that 1900 time frame is such a watershed period in our history and particularly in our state's history. Uh, because we're beginning to be forced uh, into that separate and unequal. And and just finishing, you mentioned um, the Odie family there uh, uh, who were uh, 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 in the 1880s and 90s fairly prominent people. Uh, I think the Odie, uh, uh, older Odie, actually worked as a barber at the Yarborough Hotel there and 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 so literally having to you know pick up roots and 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 go into and create what we now see in many respects as a dissolving southeast raleigh as a disappearing southeast raleigh that is an almost almost uh re i don't want to say um doing the same mistakes over but we're doing the mistake, same mistakes over again in that same community today you're absolutely right um you know you talked about uh, the masonic law 
Masonic Lodge being rolled on logs. That's what we did at St. Ambrose. We physically lifted up our edifice in June of 1900, put it on logs and rolled it um, a mile across two color lines. And Ms. Willie O.D.K. Uh, recounts it, and I'm reading, this is directly from her 1988 interview. Uh, Mrs. K said, I was about five years old then, and then I remembered even that little church, St. Ambrose, being moved right in front of our house on Cabarrus to Wilmington Street. I remember my sisters and I were sitting outside on the front porch one day, and it was rolling past going on down to the place. They had made a basement, and they rolled this little church over that. It was a basement with three rooms and a toilet, and then I was confirmed by Bishop Cheshire. So not only was the Masonic Lodge rolled, the church was rolling as well. It makes me wonder if they move the same, if they use the same log rollers. That's and a good question. Movers. Very good I mean, question. That was right, if they're right there at the same time frame, it's, you know, it just seems too plausible. At any rate, those are weird, nerdy questions from historians. And yeah, I just wanted to jump in and, and back up what Earl was talking about that, um, you know, after the Civil War, um, Raleigh communities, um, you see a lot of black communities around the fringes of the city pop up to these previous freedmen's uh, areas and, you know, former slaves rushing in to take advantage of Raleigh. But we, in the, in the following decades, it was a very mixed mixed communities. They were much more integrated, but it's not until the end of the 19th century do we see this stratifications with this these color lines really pop up hard and heavy and we see that uh, African Americans being forced to certain parts of the city and I think the church is a victim of that 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 real estate the church held was just far too valuable in the industrial core of downtown Raleigh that it had to be moved and you know the industrialist who bought the, the church's property and built the Melrose Mill you know that those white business interests at the, the economic engine that was recranking up the South of the Civil War, it was just, you have to push these undesirables out to the certain area. And certainly starting at the 1900, it is, a, it is the, the, the crash of the populist movement when poor white and poor black got together. And it was just a, a retribution that followed because like Earl mentioned, the literacy test, the poll taxes, the grandfather clause, all of these legal apparatus are in place to you know, to ensure that African-Americans can no longer mount this political revival. And then if we talk about space, the moving of space, um, some of these beautiful Raleigh neighborhoods, when they start popping up, they have restrictive covenants on them. So Boylan Heights in 1909, Glenwood 1906, Cameron Park 1910, forbade any people of color moving into it. So about this time, it's, it is hard and fast about where white people are and black people are and sort of push them farther apart. This is really what's shaping Raleigh in the first decades of the 20th century. Father Graveman, can you speak a little bit about what was happening in the diocese uh, or, e or even in the larger church around that time? Thank you. There are, uh, I wanna first, I, I don't wanna evade that question, but I wanna follow up first on a point that came up in that wonderful remembrance of rolling the church uh, down. And 
they talk about the three rooms in the basement. What's one of the aspects of, 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 of St. Ambrose that, that should not be overlooked is its continuing commitment to education. And um, under the leadership of James King, um, a parochial day school is created uh, starting in 1895 uh, that will have 200 students in that basement by 1910. And so that one of the things that I would want to underscore is that while the political and social and cultural turn is, um, is distressing and, and, and we have blatant racism um, uh, being you know, manifested in, in, uh, and enshrined in law, um, that, com that continuing commitment to educational uplift on the part of the black church and the black community should not go unacknowledged. So really it's uh, the fact that, that those three rooms are created and then the church is ruled over it, again, reminds us of the importance of education and the black church going hand in hand. Well, but, I actually uh, want to stay on that point before you go to the question I asked. Um, thank you for bringing up uh, Father King and the, the educational component. Um, just from doing some simple math, um, St. Ambrose during that time, I think had one of the first kindergartens, or perhaps the only kindergarten, um, perhaps in Raleigh, maybe in the state. And we were educating 20% of the eligible Black population, which is quite impressive when you think of one congregation um, providing education for 20% of, of Black people who, of course, were in the proper age group at that time. So yeah, commitment um, to education and that the building followed it. Not only was yeah. the building moved, but it was expanded. Basement, yeah. and then, of course, uh, uh, rectory and uh, education facility on site. Yeah, so, yeah, I know it's a bit of a just, you know, a sidetrack, but I just wanted to make sure that that continuing sense of identity um, is, is acknowledged as well. Um, yeah, the Diocese of North Carolina, you know, you know is, is accommodating its theology and practice to the realities of Jim Crow in ways that are, are, are very sad and um, indefensible, but, uh, but real. And, uh, and so um, this is the period in which, um, you know, up through the 1890s, it's still possible to find biracial congregations and a biracial commitment uh, to, to shared ministry. And after 1898, that's it's just completely gone. And the black church is left um, to make its own way in the world. And, uh, and the leadership and the resources are uh, coming uh, somewhat from Northern uh, philanthropy, but much of it is, is homegrown and um, speaks to um, these enduring values and commitments uh, on the part of Black Episcopalians to remain loyal to their own sense of mission and calling. 
And as you see that, especially in the educational outreach that St. Ambrose is doing in the early 20th century. Uh, does that, is that what you wanted to, does that answer the question? No, that's perfect. And I think I really appreciate your phrase of uh, the church following culture. Uh, the church has done a fantastic job, and that is not complimentary, of not leading culture, but rather following. Um, so, and as you just delineated, that time period, the other 20, early 20th century is, is a perfect example. Others, comments on this time period um, from 1900 to 1965, huge uh, expanse of time. Um, we know that when St. Ambrose was rolled into its location a year later, we have the building of the Pope House. Um, I think that's correct, 1901, uh, Pope being uh, one of the first, if not the first physician Black physician in Raleigh, and certainly the first Black person to run for mayor of Raleigh. Is that correct, Ernest? Yeah, we had uh, actually had one other mayor or Black memorial candidate in the 1870s, Handy Lockhart. Man. But uh, certainly Dr. Pope's run was um, one of the most powerful, and he was on a slate of other Black politicians. And uh, yeah, Dr. Pope um, built his, his house immediately adjacent to where the church we moved to. So we do a lot of studying on this third ward part of the city. And um, it's, a, it's a growing professional neighborhood. We always try to understand why Dr. Pope built his house here. Um, it is right on this color line. He was staring into the back of all of these white mansions that lined Fayetteville Street. It was adjacent to his alma mater at Shaw University. And there were a number of professional men who lived up and down the street. So it's a, it's a thriving neighborhood at this time. And, uh, but, I think a lot of the access to education and resources began to take its toll on this neighborhood um, later on. And certainly, if you go to where the church was at this time, the Pope House, it is a sea of, sea of concrete. And I think we'll cover that in the next section. But certainly by the end of this period, um, we see that Raleigh's Black communities um, get the suburb bug. Um, downtown has is not a lot of access to resources. It's kind of a, a congested, um, kind of bad areas. So you really see it by the end of this period, the 1950s, post-World War II, an incredible boom of black suburbs across the city. Um, Chavis Heights, Rochester Heights, uh, Madonna Acres, a lot of these explodes. So you see a a pell-mell escape from downtown to these places that promise the American dream. So a lot of these neighborhoods pop up around the city and just kind of leave the inner core around the church and the Pope house to decline. Thank you, Ernest. Uh, thank you, Brooks. And thank you, Earl, for your comments. Uh, we've heard from Mr. Ernest Dollar, Executive Director of the City of Raleigh Museum, the Reverend Dr. Brooks Gravener, historiographer for the Episcopal Diocese, and Dr. Earl Imes of the North Carolina Museum of History. Thank you so much for your comments about this time period.
The Wading Deep Podcast comes to you from a place we affectionately call the Bros, St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, The Bros NC on Twitter, and The Bros 1868 on Instagram. I am your host, the Reverend Jamond Taylor. Gods are going to trouble the water of environmental racism, resurrecting a river of life clear as crystal. Shalom. Salam. Peace.